This is the Lesbian Historic Motif Podcast, brought to you by Heather Rose Jones. The show looks at lesbian and sapphic themes in history and literature, and historical fiction with queer female characters, including fantastic versions of the past. We present research, interviews, news of the field, book listings, and original historical fiction for your enjoyment. For even more historic research, check out our blog, Welcome to On the Shelf for May 2023. As I'm writing this a couple weeks in advance of airtime, my part of California has very abruptly decided it's summer now. A week ago, it was cold and rainy. Now it's time to turn off the thermostat and start up the irrigation system. Looking out my office window, the bees are buzzing around the apple blossoms, the lemons are hanging heavy on the tree, and the apothecary roses are starting to bloom. This May is going to be a bit of a landmark month for me, given that I'll be turning 65. I think at this point I officially get classified as an old. You never really know how you're going to feel about such things. I'll be celebrating the event with a spa weekend in Napa with my best friend, and a three-week vacation. That also includes two SFF conventions. So I guess you can conclude that I won't be slowing down. And if you've ever wondered... What would the host of my favorite podcast appreciate getting as a birthday present? The answer is always and ever, leave us a review on your favorite podcast site, or talk us up to your friends on social media, or tell people about how the Lesbian Historic Motif podcast has changed your life. Well, okay, don't go overboard, but be assured that spreading the word about the podcast does make a difference. I can always tell from the listener numbers when people have been talking us up. Speaking of spreading the word, I have a lead on a very exciting interview prospect that I can't wait to share with you all. I won't jinx it by mentioning names before we have the details nailed down, but let's just say that my response to the query fell somewhere short of being calm, cool, and collected. There's nothing quite like being taken seriously as a venue by people you admire in the field. The blog still doesn't have any new publications up, alas, but I happened to be in Berkeley doing some shopping yesterday and decided to drop by Moe's Books to browse through the Gender and Sexuality section to see what I could turn up. I found two new-to-me books on historic cross-dressing, one older and one recent. Vern L. Bullock and Bonnie Bullock have a number of publications on cross-dressing in history, and this book, Cross-Dressing, Sex, and Gender, includes a rather extensive historic survey through Western culture. The articles I've read by the Bolos tend to feel very outdated, particularly when they address social interpretations of cross-dressing. Though, that's not at all surprising, given that the publications I've covered were written 30 to 50 years ago. Much more up-to-date is Redressing America's Frontier Past by Peter Bowick, which looks at cross-dressing of all types within the later part of 19th century America, and the ways in which that aspect of the American West was deliberately erased from popular history, with shifting understandings of sexuality at the turn of the century. Within the last decade, there have been a number of excellent studies around this topic that I'd consider essential reading for anyone contemplating writing a cross-dressed woman in a Wild West setting. New and recent book listings are a bit more sparse this month than they've been lately, but there's a lot of variety. And, you know, that thing I was complaining about Amazon a few months ago, the thing where my lesbian historical fiction keyword searches were turning up hundreds of reissued classic novels with identical generic covers? 
It looks like just maybe Amazon is doing something about that, because this time the search only included one of those. Though when I posted about it on social media, someone else mentioned that they'd run a search for lesbian romance just a couple days ago and were inundated with classic spam, as usual. So the jury is still out on whether they found a way to address the problem. Serendipitously, when I was checking out that person's search using lesbian romance as the keywords rather than lesbian historical, I turned up an April book that I would have missed. Folks, here's the importance of proper keywords in your book listings. I can only boost the books that I can find. That April book is the historic fantasy A Wound Like Lapis Lazuli by Melody Wickland. The cover copy mentions the Baroque era, but not a specific year, and the setting seems to be an invented Italian kingdom. Ricardo Montero is a painter of great repute, favored by the king of Salandra, and chosen by him to paint the ceiling of a temple dedicated to a sea goddess. When he mysteriously goes missing, his friend Beatrice enters a competition to paint the temple in his stead. But when the sea goddess herself gets involved in Beatrice's painting and in her life, Beatrice finds herself in over her head. Hopefully, the woman she's falling in love with can help keep her afloat. Meanwhile, Ricardo has been kidnapped by one of the king's enemies, a woman who claims the kidnapping is purely to spite the king, but who seems obsessed with Ricardo himself. Under pressure and learning secrets he never wanted to know, Ricardo fights to maintain his loyalty to the king and control over his feelings in his life. The May books start off with a story in one of my favorite centuries, The Disenchantment by Celia Bell from Pantheon. I've picked up the audiobook for this, and it'll probably get moved to next in line to listen to. In 17th century Paris, everyone has something to hide. The noblemen and women and writers consort with fortune tellers in the dark confines of their salons, Ser servants practice witchcraft and black magic, and the titled poison family members to obtain inheritance. Before the Baroness Marie Catherine, the only thing she wishes to hide is how unhappy she is in her marriage, and the pleasures she seeks outside of it. When her husband is present, the Baroness spends her days tending to her children and telling them elaborate fairy tales. When he's gone, Marie Catherine indulges in a more liberated existence, one of salons and grand houses, forward-thinking discussions with female scholars, and at the center of her freedom, Victoire Rose de Bourbon, Mademoiselle de Conti, the androgynous, self-assured countess who steals Marie Catherine's heart and becomes her lover. Victoire possesses everything Marie Catherine does not, confidence in her love, and a brazen fearlessness in all that she's willing to do for it. But when Victoire's passion results in a shocking act of murder, she and Marie Catherine must escape from the tight clutches of Paris's eager chief of police. As they attempt to outwit him, they are led to the darkest corners of Paris and Versailles. What they discover is a city full of lies, mysticism, and people who have secrets they would also kill to keep. Jane Walsh is starting a new Regency-era series at Bold Strokes Books with The Accidental Bride, The Spinsters of Inverley, number one. Miss Grace Linfield has resigned herself to life as a lady's companion as the only path to respectable security. At least it allows her to visit the beautiful seaside town of Inverley with her charge, Lady Edith. Passions flare when botanist Miss Thea Martin whirls into town and into Grace's bed for a scandalous night of passion. Disaster looms when Lady Edith elopes with Thea's brother. Prim and proper Grace and wildly outrageous Thea each wish it was anyone else by their side as they race after them to Gretna Green. 
In the midst of attempting to stop a wedding that will incur the wrath of both their families, they discovered their passion for each other is too strong to resist. A chance at a real relationship was the last thing either of them expected. When Grace and Thea return from Scotland, would the honeymoon be over? Or will love finally be in full bloom? I have a bit of an idiosyncratic prejudice against treating vampire stories as historical if the primary story is set in the present day and the historical element comes in only via the vampire's immortality. But A Long Time Dead by Samara Breger from Bywater Books is set entirely in the early 19th century, so it fits this podcast's remit more closely. Somewhere Foggy, 1830. Poppy had always loved the night which is why it wasn't too much of a bother to wake one evening in an unfamiliar home far from London, weak and confused, and plagued with a terrible thirst for blood, to learn that she could no longer step out into the day. And while vampirism presented several disadvantages, it more than made up for those in its benefits. Immortality? A body that could run at speed for hours without tiring? The thrill of becoming a predator? the thing that pulls rabbits from bushes and tears through their fur and flesh with the sharp point of a white fang. And, of course, Rashid, the mysterious woman who has lived for centuries and who held Poppy through her painful transformation, and who, for some reason, is now teaching her how to adjust to her new endless life. A tight, lonely, buttoned-up woman with kindness and care pressed up behind her teeth. The time they spend together is as transformative to Poppy as the changes in her body, and soon she finds herself hopelessly, overwhelmingly attached. But Roshin has secrets of her own, and can't make any promises, not when vengeance must be served. Soon their little world explodes. Together and apart, they encounter scores of vampires, shifty pirates, conniving opera singers, ancient nobles, glamorous French women, and a found family that throws a very particular sort of party. But overhead, threat looms, one woman who is capable of destroying everything Poppy and Roisin hold dear. As I mentioned earlier, there have been a number of relatively recent historical studies that look at cross-dressing and transing gender in the American West that can inspire new angles on queer historical stories. Another relatively recent shift has been in how characters who previously would have been characterized as passing women are treated in fiction given contemporary understandings of gender performance. They Ain't Proper by M.B. Gould from Bella Books signals that we shouldn't jump to conclusions about the gender of one of the protagonists. 1880s, the Wild West. An easy, solitary life on the outskirts of Ghost Hollow is all Lou Ramirez wants. They want to buy their house plans and live their quiet life far from townsfolk's prying eyes. That plan, however, hits a bump when instead of house plans, a housewife is delivered to their door instead. Florence Castellanos desperately needs a way out from under her family debt, and it seems as though selling her services as a wife is the only way to do it. Expecting a rough, harsh man to be her new husband, Florence is pleasantly surprised to instead be dropped off at the ranch of an equally surprised Lou. Lou would rather Florence leave them to their lonely existence, but Florence is too charmed by the quiet and mysterious rancher to give up. She may have come into Lou's life easily, but she certainly isn't planning to leave that way. Undeterred by Lou's prickly demeanor, Florence is determined to get her reluctant spouse to open up to her. When the past comes back to haunt the pair, the fight for their independence and their love may become more deadly than either of them ever expected. When the first book in the Las Leonas historic romance series came out, 
I kept trying to figure out why it showed up with a tag for lesbian, because the cover copy sure sounded like a male-female romance. So I dropped that one from my spreadsheet and chalked it up to overzealous keywording. But now that the second book in the series is out, I guess they're just tagging the entire series as lesbian because one of the component's books is, I guess. Anyway, Los Leones Book 2, An Island Princess Starts a Scandal, by Adriana Herrera from Canary Street Press, looks absolutely delicious. It, too, has gone into my audiobook queue. One Last Summer for Manuela del Carmen Caceres Galvan, the invitation to show her paintings at the 1889 Exposition Universelle came at the perfect time. Soon to be trapped in a loveless marriage, Manuela has given herself one last summer of freedom, in Paris, with her two best friends. One scandalous encounter. Cora Kempf Bristol, Duchess of Sundridge, is known for her ruthlessness in business. It's not money she chases, but power. When she sees the opportunity to secure her position among her rivals, she does not hesitate. How difficult could it be to convince the mercurial Miss Caceres Galvan to part with a parcel of land she's sworn never to sell? One life-changing bargain. Tempted by Cora's offer, Manuela proposes a trade. Her beloved land for a summer with the Duchess in her corner of Paris. A taste of the wild, carefree world that will soon be out of her reach. What follows thrills and terrifies Cora, igniting desires the Duchess long thought dead, as they fill their days indulging in a shared passion for the arts and their nights with dark and delicious deeds. The happiness that seemed impossible moves within reach, though claiming it would cause the greatest scandal Paris has seen in decades. Considering the thriving community of lesbian romance authors in Australia, there are surprisingly few historic romances set there. But this month we get one more addition to that short list. House of Longing by Tara Callaby from Text Publishing. Charlotte has always known she is different. Where other young women see their destiny in marriage and motherhood, the reclusive Charlotte wants only to work with her father in its stationary business, perhaps even run it herself one day. Then Flora Dalton bursts through the shop door and into Charlotte's life, and a new world of baffling desires and possibilities seems to open up to her. But Melbourne society of the 1890s is not built to embrace unorthodoxy. When tragedy strikes and Charlotte is unmoored by grief, she finds herself admitted to Q Lunatic Asylum for her own safety. There she learns that women enter the big white house on the hill for many reasons, not all of them to do with lunacy. That her capacity for love, loyalty, and friendship is greater than she had ever understood, and that it will take all of these things along with an unexpected talent for guile, to extract herself from the care of men and make her way back to her heart's desires. Kim Pritikal's Winter series from Sapphire Books includes both contemporary and historic stories, all revolving around the town of Winter, Colorado. The fifth book in the series, Showing Mercy, is only the second book with the historic setting. Fifteen-year-old Mercy Faulkner is hit with the hardest blow of her young life when her beloved father is killed in an accident. Now she must leave all she knows to move with her mother, a hard woman that she feels like she barely knows, to the small mountain town of Winter, Colorado. Her mother has been offered a job there and a place to live and start over for the two. Bethany Winter, 17, gorgeous, and the granddaughter of the founder of Winter and early residence Justice and Theo Cacoyne, she has everything going for her 
She and her twin brother Billy are at the top of their game, popular, well-loved in the community, and dominate in academics and athletics. But when the beautiful and shy Mercy shows up in town, a sibling rivalry will begin that will split the twins for the first time in their life. When World War II hits the shores of the United States, everything changes for everyone. Who will go off to war? Who will come back? And will any of them ever be the same? As usual, the new releases this month include a reminder that I could only include the books I know about. And knowing about books either means that they get talked up in the social media I follow, or someone lets me know about forthcoming releases directly, or they have the right keywords to turn up in my searches on Amazon, which, alas, is still the most efficient place to run such searches, and have cover copy that make the sapphic content clear. If you have a book coming out, or know of one, that you think might fall within the scope of the Lesbian Historic Motif Project, please drop me a note. I'm sure there are books I miss unintentionally. So, what have I been reading lately? It's been a thin month, in part because I'm writing the show a bit earlier than usual, but in part because life has been hectic. Although I have several books in process, I only completed listening to two audiobooks. The latest installment in Sherry Thomas's Lady Sherlock series, A Tempest at Sea, follows the pattern set previously with a lot of non-linear storytelling, unreliable narrators, and revisiting key scenes from different points of view to gradually unlock the story. This particular method of building a mystery story may not be to everyone's taste, but it's absolute catnip for me. This volume is a sort of locked room mystery on board a ship, with Charlotte Holmes spending the entire story arc in disguise. The various twists are satisfying as identities and motives are sorted out. And, as in previous books in the series, the casual inclusion of historically appropriate queer characters makes me feel much at home, even without any central queer romance. The second audiobook I completed is more overtly sapphic, but comes with a warning for character death. The Pull of the Stars by Emma Donahue is set in Ireland during the Spanish flu pandemic in the early 20th century. Reading it while still in the midst of COVID is unsettling in the parallels. The novel was written prior to COVID, but was expedited to release it once the pandemic started. The story spans only a few days in the life of a nurse in a combination flu maternity ward and packs a lot of drama into that short period. One of the many sub-themes is harsh criticism of the treatment of unwed mothers and their children. This was a hard and painful book to read, but pandemics aren't exactly a bed of roses to live through or die in. Last week, we aired Catherine Lundoff's story, The Pirate in the Mirror, and today we have her on the show to talk about that and her other projects. The Lesbian Historic Motif podcast has published four of the Jacot and Celeste stories, and I know there was one previous to that that people can read on your Patreon, yes? Yep, yep. Just updated Patreon with links, as a matter of fact. Yay. So this is going to sound like one of those where do your ideas come from questions, but how do you plan out a series of connected stories like this, or or do you? So back when I had more free time before I took up publishing and other wacky things, I spent a lot of time doing a much less formal version of what you do. I was poking around and looking at histories of various women who may or may not have been queer through time and space. And I was looking at queer pirates. So we started there. So I was like, okay, I want to write a kind of swashbuckling tale about a pirate who may or may not have been queer. And I picked Chaco de la Haye. My apologies to anybody who actually speaks French. I'm doing the best I can, just saying. 
<laughs> I was poking around with that and it dawned on me that I had seen a reference someplace where I'm, I'm like, I, I, Alexander Dumas saved my life as a, as a child and a young teenager. So I've read like an enormous amount of like his entire oeuvre. So not just the Three Musketeers, but like all the sequels and the satellite stories and all the extra stuff that he did and a bunch of his other historical novels because my family had them and it was a way to ignore my family, which was very helpful at the time. Anyway, <laughs> so one of the things that I vaguely remembered having seen in a history it might have been Carrie Spaulding's book on the Three Musketeers. I don't remember. But somewhere along the line, I saw a reference to a couple of the women who may have inspired Milady, the character in the Three Musketeers. And one of them was a spy who was active in the Caribbean at the time. And if you've listened to my any of my previous stories for this series, you know that the last one included Afra Ben as a character. And Afra Ben went on to become the first known woman to support herself through writing plays, very famous playwright for the Restoration in England. But prior to that, she did a brief stint as a spy for the English government in Suriname. So I got, I got interested in like the spy networks and things that were going on, because normally when we look at that area during that time period, you know, we're looking at a couple of things. We're looking at, you know, slavery because you can't get away from that that's a, an integral part of what's going on we're looking at a whole bunch of like naval and colonial machinations and byzantine power struggles and and you've got what's the what becomes the golden age of piracy by the time you get in you know about a century later but it starts back in the 1600s you know, you could find pirates back to the 1500s, but they really start to come into their own in the 1600s. So you've got piracy, you've got spies, you've got naval warfare, you've got all these things going on. And I was like, wow, I want to write something about this. So I wrote the first Chacot and Celeste Gerard um, story for a collection that I did a number of years ago. And that one, it, the links and that story are all a public post on my Patreon. So, you know, you can check it out there. So the first story was The Letter of Mark, and that, that's what launched them. And I knew they weren't done with me. I knew I wanted to write more stories about them because, I mean, it's this amazing time period. How can you not want to write more stories set in it? Uh, and then when you launched the podcast series, I was like, ooh, 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 I want to do more of these. <laughs> so it was a great inspiration for me to launch back into the next series of them. And so... Every time I've written a new one of these, I went poking around for a new piece of historical information for something that was going on during the time period. So a letter of Mark is basically just introducing the characters and their first adventure. The second one, One Night in San Martin, which is the second story, is about the Dutch and the Dutch and French conflicts that were going on at the time period, you know, specifically on the island of San Martin, which is like split down the middle during this time period between a Dutch colony and a French colony. The third story, they actually go back to France and they deal with Cardinal Mazarin. And if you've read The Three Musketeers, you know that the, the, the big foil in The Three Musketeers is Cardinal Richelieu and his guards and the lady works for him and so forth. Well, Mazarin was his successor. And Mazarin was a, a much more political animal, much less inclined to engage in, say, wacky stuff like assassinations and so forth. But 
if you if you read more of Dumas, if you read the following books, like you get into 20 years after and D'Artagnan and a couple of the others are sitting around in this tavern and they're reminiscing about what a great opponent Richelieu was and how much respect they had for him and how Cardinal Mazarin is just not up to the challenge of being a real honorable opponent. You want to go out, you know, and I love that. I mean, that's great. <laughs> so Dumas never developed the affinity for Mazarin that he had for Richelieu. So Mazarin gets kind of short shrift, but he was actually pretty capable. He steered the French st ship of state for a number of years for a variety of reasons during Louis XIV uh, when he was still a minor. Did a number of things which were part of what drove Louis XIV to become an absolute monarch. <laughs> it was partially dealing with Mazarin and there, there was a, a revolt by the nobles, um, Fronde. Uh, there's just all kinds of stuff going on. So I wanted to work in some of that as well because again, all pretty much within that same rough time period. I do play a little fast and loose on the dates, but everything is within the same, you know, 10 to 30 years you know, of real historical actual events. Fourth story is the the one that I I did last time and I need to check the name. The Adventurous? Thank you, The Adventurous. Okay, and that one is about Afro Ben. And one of the things that I discovered when I was poking around looking at Afro Ben was that in Suriname, there was this English quasi-utopian if you were a noble colony that got set up on the coast of Suriname and it was set up by um, a English nobleman who was escaping from Cromwell and it was like anybody who was a landowner presumably male had the right to vote within you know for the council and so it didn't last for very long but it was really interesting while it did they, they actually did um, some things that kind of, you know, of course, it was mostly driven by, you know, the labor of, of Native people and, you know, people who are enslaved and brought over and indentured servants and so forth. But there were elements about it where they were attempting to get to something that had it survived might have eventually developed a more democratic form of government. Mm -hmm. So not surprisingly, the crown dispatched their spies, among whom was Afrobin at the time period. So the interesting thing about Afrobin's period of spycraft, which lasted for a couple of years, was that the main reason we know about it was because she sent so many letters to the crown trying to get paid for it. <laughs> and so there, there's a bunch of things that Janet Todd wrote this brilliant, brilliant biography of Afrobin that, that touches on part of this time period. But one of the reasons that you know, we, heard, we know who Afro Ben is because her plays were produced for centuries and she was very, a very popular playwright, a very, you know, key figure in the Restoration Court. But the reason we know about the spy part was because of all these letters trying to get paid. <laughs> um, so I worked that into the story as well, because I, I think that, you know, we, we have a vision now when we look at it and go, oh, spies during the time period. You know, you think of the Elizabethans and so forth. Um, well, if you've seen, I just saw Born with Teeth, which is this really great play about Christopher Marlowe and William Shakespeare. And Marlowe was known to be a spy for the English crown. And one of the things that Marlowe also talks about in his, you know, in, in, in various references to friends and so forth is the continuing struggle to get paid for this work. So it was kind of an ongoing thing that you get over you know, the centuries. So I wanted to work in some of that. This time around, this news story is uh, more about the other pirates who are active. Um, so this is, you know, this Jacques Delhaye 
precedes Anne Bonny and Mary Reed and a couple of the others. But there was another woman pirate who was active at the time. And again, some of the stuff is, you know, it's 47th hand. There were, you know, a couple of essentially, you know, journalists who were running around, you know, kind of making things up as they went. There was one who was buddies with Sir Henry Morgan and like followed him around from the, from the time of his piracy until the time he became governor of Jamaica, documenting all of the stuff. But it was, it was very sensational, sensational history. So there were some things in there was like, did they exist? Did they not exist? Don't know. Yes, there were probably there were women involved in the pirate fleets. You know, Anne Bonny and Mary Reed did not spring from whole cloth. They were they had predecessors. Jacot de la Haye may or may not have been biracial, may or may not have been from Haiti, may or may not have actually been known as back from the dead red because she supposedly had red hair and and had dodged the bullet and the cannonball so many times that <laughs> this was part of her reputation. Who knows? Some of that may have been true. Some of that may not have been true. I will say that if you go into the history of women pirates, women pirates who are of European descent almost always have red hair. <laughs> it's <laughs> mysterious. <laughs> I, think, I think Mary Reed manages to have black hair, but everybody else has got red hair at some point. So, you know, so oh, question. So Jacot de la Haye is based on an actual rumored person. Yes, yes. That was that um, was one of the other questions I had. Yeah. And what about, about Celeste Gerard? Is, is she based on a specific person? Celeste is based on a composite of the women who inspired Milady. Okay. Um, all of whom were spies active in the Caribbean at the either in the Caribbean or in France at the time. And the one who was actually in the Caribbean was actually a British spy. She was a, an English noblewoman who was, I think, working for Cromwell, oddly enough. So, so she, she's, she's, a, she's a, a composite of, of several different, okay. different you know, folks. Because I figure that if we've heard about three of them, there were probably more. Yeah. So at the end of The Pirate in the Mirror... It, it feels like you're setting up for the next story. So, you know, it looks like it's going to be in Paris. It may have to do with French royal politics. Maybe. Uh, could be. Could be. That, that, that's gelling. Yeah. yeah. Do, do you have sort of a, an, an overall picture for this arc? Or do, do the stories just keep generating the next story? Well, you know, at some point, Delahaye is interesting because uh, um, along with the the, the semi-historical, semi-legendary thing. Um, she's one of the few who actually gets to retire. Um, so eventually yeah, we're going to get to the point where... A happy ending. <laughs> yes. So eventually we, we will get to the point where, you know, that there, there, there will be a retirement because that actually is part uh -huh. of her particular legend. <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, we will we, we will get to a point where we, you know, she, she was active for maybe 20 years, so... You know, there, there, there's after a certain point, it's like, okay, to add more into this, you know, then we start making stuff up and it gets further and further away from, you know, his actual historical events. So yeah, there, there will eventually be a point where, where, spoiler alert, she will get to retire, but stuff will happen. Lots so of stuff that, will that happen. little in on the seaside with the smuggling and spying on the side. <laughs> I love that idea. I, I, just, that, that I mean, just... what else would a retired pirate do? <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Yes. So what other current projects would you like to tell our listeners about? 
Um, well, my menopausal werewolf novels, Silver Moon and Blood Moon are coming out in audiobook from Tantor Media. Silver Moon is going to come out at the end of May and Blood Moon is going to come out at the end of June. Tantor, which is a large media company that does a lot of audio productions, has already optioned book three, Blue Moon. So I'm working on that. I'm also working on, I've got a novel in progress that's a sort of, it's a kind of epic fantasy that I've been playing with for a while that I've been working on for my Patreon. I'm right now going back into that and kind of getting regrounded in things and getting some new stuff, you know, worked in there. I've got a couple of other projects I've been hoping to get back to. There's there's an essay, a queer horror essay I want to pitch to a journal. And then there's a couple of other things that I need to to delve into. But since Tantor just bought the media rights to the next book, I'm kind of like, okay, best write that next novel. <laughs> it's nothing quite like having a market waiting for a product to be inspiring yeah. or yeah. or to be, you know, completely, you know, destroying your ability to create, you know, it depends. <laughs> yeah, I, 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 I don't have time to bleed in the words of our immortal former governor. Um, so actually, one of the things your listeners might be really interested in is, is a thing that Publisher Me is doing. Uh, we're going to put out a historical fantasy novella this summer called Little Nothing by an author named Dee Holloway. And it is very much sapphic historical. It's set in Florida at the start of the Civil War. And it's about a young interracial lesbian couple, one of whom does not work magic. For, for clarification, let us tell the listeners who are not seeing the word that that is not work as in K-N-O-T work, not as in she does ah, yes. not work magic <laughs> no no she works in an inn she works um anyway so and then um her lover who uh trains lime runners which are essentially like the florida equivalent of water horses uh -huh. and the confederacy is trying to use the water horses against the union and our, our plucky heroines have to stop them and it's really really good there's lots of nice historical detail really great characters really beautifully drawn um and i think people are really going to like it so that'll be out in july I'm hoping that maybe I could get her on the show to talk about it a little. Oddly enough, I was going to ask about this right after this. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes. Uh, Dee has mentioned being a big fan of the show and is, is, was was hoping that that might be the the case, that something might work out there. So, so uh, where can people find you online? Uh, you can find me personally at katherinelundoff.net. I'm also out on... You know, <laughs> the remains of Twitter, uh, Mastodon, Facebook. I also run Queen of Swords Press, and Queen of Swords Press is active on all of those things and has a TikTok, an Instagram, a newsletter. Um, so all of my news tends to get incorporated and my author's news tends to get incorporated in the newsletter. I will put links to those in the show notes. Maybe not every single one of them, but the, the hubs through which people can find all of the social media. And uh, thank you so much for uh, joining us to talk about your story. Thank you so much for having me and for hosting the story. I love this project. This is such a great project. I'm really, really glad to be a part of it again. I hope you've enjoyed this episode of the Lesbian Historic Motif podcast. See the show notes for links to people and topics. Most shows will have a transcript linked as well. If you have a book announcement, a topic suggestion, or might like to appear on the show, please drop me an email. 
If you enjoyed this podcast, please rate it and subscribe on your favorite podcast app, and consider supporting our Patreon.